So we're actually recording now. Actually the seconds recording. are ticking. Yes, we are recording. Because that's giving me PTSD now. That, that one time where we recorded a half an episode and then had to re-record everything. Yeah. But <laughs> welcome everyone. Rink Rat Report podcast. Usual suspects, Josh, Jason here as well. But today we got on Jack Han. We're incredibly happy to have you on. Um, been following you for a couple of years now. Uh, former Leafs analyst, former Marley's assistant coach, current, correct me if this title is incorrect, current consultant, NHL consultant. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I do a variety of things. I, I write on my newsletter. I tweet a lot. Uh, I work with players from minor hockey to pro. So uh, g- general hockey enthusiast right now. <laughs> hockey aficionado. I think that's a would be another and author as well. How could we forget that one of hockey tactics one and two and the chill guide. Don't forget. And the chill guide. Wow. So yeah, hockey aficionado, I think is, would be the title on your business card there, but thank you so much for having, uh, for, for coming on with us. Um, let's get into it first to start all the way from the, from the beginning. How did you get into hockey? Um, so unlike uh, probably uh, most people listening to this podcast, um, my parents didn't know what hockey was growing up. Uh, I didn't know what hockey was growing up. We, we moved to Canada when I was six years old. So I was born in China. Um, and then when I got to Montreal, my best friend played hockey. So my parents signed me up to, for house league. Uh, he played like the equivalent of like house select. So he was, he was quite a bit better than me. And like, I, I was like on the lowest possible team and I was the worst kid on, on the lowest team. But, you know, I kind of stuck with it. I, and I think today, a lot of what makes me a, an effective coach or writer or, you know, hockey researcher is I was really bad at hockey and I figured out how to get somewhat less bad. And that process is actually really valuable because I can be talking to a guy who plays you know, in the AHL or in the SHL or, you know, drafted to play in the NHL. And, you know, we're going through the same process. We're looking at his game and we're, we're looking for opportunities to get better. So whether, you know, you're very, you're very bad, like I was, or you're very good, like, uh, like an Austin Matthews or a Mitch Barner, there's always room for improvement. And the way to get there, I think is really valuable. That's an interesting one. That's a, that's actually a really good way to, to put it there. I mean, I like to think I let in a lot of, I'm, I'm a goalie, still do play. I let in a lot of goals, so I'm able to analyze very well um, why. Um, I have a wide range to, to work with here. But so anyway, so getting into your elite prospects profile here, you started off with the women's team at McGill. How did you get into to that sort of role there as an analyst? So before I got to McGill, um, so I went, I went to university there, and when I was a student, a few of my classmates actually played varsity hockey um, for the women's team. So I knew of the program. They had really good results, and you know I, I would go and watch games. And um, so I always kind of had in the back of my mind that like that was a really good organization to eventually get involved with somehow. Because obviously, you know, as a guy, I wasn't going to play, but, you know, maybe there was something else for me. So in the meantime, I graduated from McGill with a degree in commerce, um, went to work in a few different places, uh, kind of on the business and marketing side, didn't really enjoy it. Like I was doing okay, but it just felt like I was kind of, you know, treading water. Um, And then 
so I just started writing about sports for free, like for different blogs, whether it was hockey or tennis, like I got involved in, in student journalism and, you know, fast forward three or four years, there was a job posting for um, a social media coordinator for the Montreal Canadiens. And, you know, I didn't have a huge hockey background. Um, obviously I was, I was a mediocre player. I coached high school hockey for a bit. Um, but I did write about it for quite a few years. So I got the job there. And uh, in that job, I was able to go to the Bell Center, watch games uh, at home, travel on the team charter, uh, got to really understand how the sausage is made, you know, when it comes to NHL hockey. And what that did was, I think for most people, they would have been really happy just to be there. And they would have wanted to make that last as long as possible. But what I learned there was like, I wasn't happy just writing about what was going on. Like I wanted to influence what was going on. And so at the end of that contract, I figured um, I didn't really care what league I was going to be in. I just wanted to be in a place where I got to influence what was happening. And uh, as it so happened, um, the McGill women's team, they were looking for a video coach. And I had, um, you know, developed an, an appreciation for analytics. So, so I kind of went into that job, combined both of those things and really became, you know, pretty important part of the coaching staff, I would say. And I was able to do really good work for three years there. And that's when Kyle Dubas reached out and brought me over to the Leafs. Wow. That's awesome. So you got a good look at Melody Deu, who just won a world championship. What was it like watching her in university? Well, she was by far the best player in the league. Um, if you if you look if you dug into if you dig into like the the league awards, the time that she was there, she didn't win Player of the Year every year, which is a joke because she was by far the best player in the league. Um, you know, I think the league spread that trophy around just to be nice to other players and other teams. But for me, there was no. Um, uh, there was absolutely no debate. And, and it was funny because the years I was there with her, she did not once get invited to the world championship team for team Canada, which once again, um, I thought was really uh, a very big oversight. Um, and, and now, you know, now she's getting top six minutes and you see how she's basically, she always, she always was this player, but it took a while for uh, hockey Canada to get around and, and really give her that role. And, in terms of style of play, she was the first player that really opened my eyes to, uh, you know, what, what a centerman's supposed to do. Like she was the first player back and she was the first player on the offensive in, in the offensive zone. She would carry the puck high, create these high three on twos. Like you see Barzell or Matthews do. And like, um, that's where I first got exposed to that. And, and you see how, you know, her big weakness is she's not the fastest skater. But because of that, she actually really developed her, her, her hockey sense and her skill. And you see how elite players, they just find a way and they play the game um, on their terms. And, and I think being there with her really, um, it really influenced me very deeply because that's where I started to gain an appreciation for elite players and how they're different and, you know, how you got to handle them to, um, to really maximize the impact. And, and, and one story I'll share is uh, I would go on the ice with the, with the women um, for practice. And then one day after practice, uh, Milo took me aside and she, she asked me to work on her uh, like picking up pucks off the rim. And she wasn't happy with how she was doing it in, in a game. So she, 
basically she told me to take like 20 pucks uh, set up uh, at the far blue line and just rim pucks down for, for her to kind of come in and pick up. And this is actually kind of a bread and butter drill now that I do with younger players, because most of the pucks that you're going to pick up in a game, they're going to be bad pucks along the wall. And the difference between uh, a bottom six and top six players, a top six player is able to take that puck, get into the middle and then make next play. And so, so really she, you know, even before I got into the NHL as, as an analyst or as a coach, like she, she actually helped me a lot with this side of, of skill development. Yeah. So, um, we're, we're a leaf centric podcast. We like to talk about the Leafs. So there was a lot of things, obviously this wasn't the best, then the, the season didn't go as planned for us Leafs fans. Um, and there's kind of a lot to talk about, but the first thing I kind of wanted to start with was, um, the power play. I feel like that really kind of defined the Leafs season. My question to you is like, what was the biggest issue with the power play um, this year? Was it like a personnel problem? Um, was there like a tactic problem? Was it was it just bad luck? Like, what what do you feel like was kind of the main issue? Do you think other teams were taking advantage, like found something and they took advantage of it? What do you think? So I think there's a few things to unpack here. And for, first of all, if you look analytically, um, both units were still very good at generating shots and expected goals so certainly there's a there's a measure of bad luck in there because any of those pucks could have gone in so so that's the first thing but it's not the only thing um so you know i i i was in the organization for three years i coached at the ahl level where i was in all the meetings for the power play and um essentially the marlies and the leafs run the same power play and the one thing that always kind of bothered me about how the power play is organized is that um, the power play breakout is very predictable. Now, it's, 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 it's extremely uh, effective because the Leafs and the Marlies, when I was there, they're they one of the best teams in the league at gaining the zone and setting up uh, because they run that double drop. So they would send two players up high. Uh, the defenseman would carry the puck down the middle of the ice and then two forwards will be trailing that defenseman. And then once the D-man drops that puck, either the first forward can take it through or he can go cross-ice the second forward who can take it through. And what that does is actually is, first of all, it's difficult for the PK to pressure that entry. But second, once you made that drop and then you gained the line, it's very easy for you to then hit your spots and set, set up into a one, three, one. So, so far, so good, right? These are all things that we're looking for. Like um, generally speaking, if you're good at getting the line, if you're good at setting up, you're going to create lots of shots, lots of expected goals and lots of actual goals. The only problem is if you compare, um, let's say the Leafs with a team like Tampa that runs a very similar end zone scheme is that really what makes Tampa really effective is, uh, Victor Hedman is a player dropping the puck, right? He's, a, he's the only D on that unit. And I talk about it in my book, Hockey Tactics 2021, which we'll, we'll, uh, we'll plug later on. But in, in the first chapter of, of that book, I talk about how Hedman can always call an audible and take the puck to the net himself. And that over the course of a season becomes very difficult for the PK to deal with because they can't overplay the drop. If they overplayed the drop, then Hedman is going to take it in pretty much. It's going to be a semi-breakaway. Whereas if you see the Leafs, whether it's uh, Riley or Brody or you know Sandine, they don't have 
Hedman's skill set, right? Like Riley's, he's fast. He's a good puck carrier, but he doesn't really have Hedman's, you know, hockey sense or his, his, his feel for the game, I would say. Uh, Sandine's not fast enough. Um, Brody lacks that kind of physicality or that aggressiveness to really do it himself. So what happens is over the course of a season, teams start to really play the drop more. And they also play, they're able to take away your first play after the entry. Because uh, if, you, if you set up off of a double drop, then it's actually a very predictable look. Like every single time, you're going to know like Marner is going to be here. Matthews is going to be here. Tavares is going to be here, so on and so forth, right? It's going to be very structured. So at five on four, the offense still has an edge, but it's not as big of an edge. So what you see is, the Leafs hardly ever score right off the entry, whereas other teams, they're able to do it just enough to keep teams honest. So that's the first thing. And, and I would say, you know, aside from luck, during the regular season, this would be my biggest explanation of why the Leafs under, underachieved is that they weren't getting those kind of like three or four or five goals off the entry that other teams are getting. In the playoffs, and this is another thing that, you know, I talk about in, in my book, uh, when I discussed Nikita Kucherov. So um, this year, Marner played the left flank and Kucherov, who's a lefty, plays the right flank for Tampa. And the, the difference between Kucherov and Marner is, first of all, Kucherov has a much better shot. But second, he's way better at handling passes that come in behind him. He's able to take a puck kind of in his back hip pocket and then make a play off of that. Whereas for Marner, he's got to stop that puck, dust it off, and then look for a seam because he's not going to shoot it, which once again makes him way more predictable. So when, when the pressure is on, uh, Kucherov is able to almost kind of manipulate the four-man PK box off of the catch and then make his next play, whereas Marner, he's way more passive. And he, you see in the playoffs against Montreal, like he would often force plays because the execution is just not quick enough. Wow, I like that. That was a very detailed. Um, so, how would uh, without I, you you wrote an article uh, about um, how to fix the least power play, and without giving too much away, um, how would you run the peep? How would you run the power play if you were the the coach right now? How would you run it personnel wise, tactically? Like, how would you do things differently? So, I've kind of had like like I wrote that one a while ago. I think I wrote it like before the playoffs, and, and I've I've thought about it some more. And there's I think two ways that you can. There's actually three ways that we can approach this problem. So in the article, mostly I talked about how uh, I would like to see Neilander with a bigger role because for me, he handles the puck a lot more like Kucherov does. He's way more deceptive because he can handle it behind him, unlike Marner. So if you put him in Marner's spot, he's going to be able to create some things. Now, he's not quite as good a passer as Marner is, and maybe his reads are a little bit slower, but um, I would say his fundamentals are better in that sense. So, so that's an opportunity to, um, it's a possibility. That's the first thing. The second thing is actually you can run it through Matthews as a dual threat, like Tampa runs it through Kucherov. The problem with that becomes who becomes like who, who's Stamkos, right? Because Stamkos is the one-timer threat when Kucherov has the puck, but also who's Braden Point? Because Braden Point is a one-timer threat when Kucherov has the puck. So now you're looking for two righties. So then if you want to run it through Matthews, um, you, you kind of create some other problems because first of all, if Matthews has the puck, he can't one-time it. The, the, the PK is going to be in his face. Second is 
Uh, is Marner going to play the, the flank where he's, his one-timer is not that good? Or is he going to play the middle, a position that he's not comfortable with? Uh, and third is like maybe Nylander is the, the flank player, but once again, who's the bumper player, right? The one in the middle. And then the third thing is um, just get Marner to become better with the puck behind. And that's a skill development thing that um, could be easy or could be very difficult to implement. But really they, they can... The, the Leafs are in a good spot in the sense that they have the luxury of trying different things. Uh, but certainly um, I think they, they gotta, they gotta like work at both the individual level and also at the group level. It's like a, it's a conundrum. There's so much. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot to unpack. That was a very so good I, answer. I have a quick follow-up to that. Actually, it seemed a lot of the complaints from Leaf fans during the playoffs about the power play was that, you know, Keith seemed, uh, not willing to change much. Like there's a lot of times people were asking for Nylander on the first power play. Do you think that's that's sort of him just sticking to his guns and he, you know he's looking at the numbers and saying they're still getting chances? Or why do you think he was? Is he seemed so reluctant to change up the personnel on that first power play? Well, I mean, it, in my experience, Sheldon does a good job of delegating to his assistant. So maybe that that could be a case of him backing up uh, Manny, who who was in charge of that unit. Um, you know, there, there's, there's several ways that you can look at it, but I think, um, you know, not having Tavares really hurt, um, yeah. you know, cause there, there was a really good five man unit that you can, you can trot out. Um, so I, so I don't know, like, I don't spend too much time thinking about that because ultimately it's his call. Like I, I see individual players who can maybe add things to their skill sets or it can be deployed a little bit better, but, um, like part of being a coach in a really tough market is, uh, you know, going against the grain sometimes. So, you know what, like if there, it, it is plausible that if you, if they stuck with it, they could have gotten out of the first round and won a cup or whatever. Like it's, I think using hindsight is kind of an unfair way to look at this, but the one thing that I do think, um, that, that even like when I was with the team that I didn't agree with, was what they did at practice. And, and this I've talked to with Sheldon, with Kyle, with everybody who would listen, but the, the, the standard operating procedure for the Leafs and the Marlies is, um, you know, if practice was an hour long, there would be a, a change of uh, rink and a flood at, at the halfway mark. Uh, so, you know, when we were at, uh, the four performance center, which is our practice rink, we would start on one of the pads and then go for 25 minutes and then switch to the other pad and then finish the session, which is great. If you want to have a session where the ice is good and the puck is not bouncing around and the players are catching passes. But for me, it did a poor job of simulating bad ice at the end of games or bad ice during the summer, which is essentially when you know, playoffs was being played. Um, so, you know, like I think back to something that I read about uh, a fellow by the name of Patrick Rafter, who was a very good professional tennis player about 25 years ago. He was number one in the world, uh, Australian. And he grew up very poor and his dad was his coach. And whenever they would go practice, his dad made a point of choosing the worst court, the one with the cracks on it, the one where the net was a little bit ratty. And the thinking was, if you practice in tough conditions, then when you go into a match, it's going to feel easier. 
Whereas the thing that I, I've always kind of had trouble with is like, we're practicing in easy conditions in really good conditions. And then we get to the bubble or we get to the playoffs or, you know, we get to late in the game where you have a dry scrape only, you don't have, uh, you know, you, you don't have good ice. Um, what happens, right? Like if you're, if you're playing a, a possession kind of game and the puck is not obeying and it's, it's bouncing up on you, like that really, it really hurts you mentally because now like you're playing a different kind of game and, and you lose that comfort factor. Whereas if you spend the whole year practicing on shitty ice with bouncy pucks and stuff like that, then it's not only a, a, a technical edge, but it's a mental edge too, because you're ready for bad conditions. That's actually a really interesting point now. And the Leafs do have to this year deal with, you know, the ice having, I don't know, like the ice quality at the AC at Scotiabank arena is not the greatest in the league, I would say, but also now you're going to have concerts on top of that ice. You're going to have the Raptors on top of that ice. It's going to impact the ice quality and speaks further to your point there. 25 minutes only on one rink. That's, that seems crazy. That seems almost like prima Donna level. Yeah. Well, well, like, um, so the, at the practice rink, uh, so the Leafs practice rink is notorious, notorious for being very cold. Whereas Scotiabank center is very warm. Mm -hmm. So already there, like a lot of the difference in ice quality can be attributed just to the temperature and humidity. Cause you know, when, when you pack the stands, then obviously it gets more humid, it gets warmer, this and that. So for me, it's, it's one of those things where like, it's not a big thing, but it just bothers me. Like it's always bothering yeah. me. Um, I did have, I wanted to get into, we had a couple, few questions that people uh, submitted. Andrew Mills asked about the power play, which we already um, addressed there. Uh, I got a question from a friend of mine, Robbie Mora. Uh, Robbie, hope you're feeling better if you're listening to this. Um, and he was asking, do you think the Leafs are headed in the right direction? Um, it, it's tough to say because I think it's such a pivotal year. Like things can go either way. And I mean, if, if you look at Tampa, like if, if you look at Tampa three and a half years ago or like, you know, were they heading the right way or Tampa, like, you know, around 2016 after they made a Stanley cup final and they couldn't quite go all the way, like it's hard to say. And, and on the one hand, you know, I'm looking at the prospects, you know, most of whom I, I know really well. And you would think, okay, well, maybe only Robertson has a chance to crack the team. But then, you know, is that true? Because, you know, Sandine might take a big step. Lilligren, we haven't really seen what he can do. Uh, Hollowell, Crawl, um, you know, um, you know, SDA's around, even though he hasn't improved as quickly as I would like. But you know, the Leafs have a lot of kind of those like kind of B prospects that I think they're all really good. I think they can all contribute somehow and they just haven't had the opportunity just yet. Um, so I don't know, like, like, I think it is going to be a really pivotal year. I, I do, I do think that they're mostly uh, the same team as last year, maybe a little bit worse on paper, but, but who, who's to say it really. I have just a, a jumping off point from something you said there about Sandine and Robertson and Lilligren. We've discussed a lot on this podcast about, you know, the development of those guys and a lot goes into that. So it's hard to say from an outside perspective, but how do you think they like they've done with developing some of those prospects? Like when you bring in a guy like Miko Lettinen, for example, last year, who's clearly 
going to take time away for Rasmus Sandin. And I remember his dad tweeting the frustration of him not playing. Do you think they've, I don't want to say they've done a disservice to some of these guys, but do you think some of the, the idea that these guys are B-level prospects that we don't know about has to do with the fact that we just haven't even seen them really be tested in the NHL that yet? Well, I mean, in, in recent years, the Leafs have been a pretty good, pretty deep team. And generally speaking, if you're a pretty good, pretty deep team, that the rookies don't play a lot, right? Like if, if you think back to any good team in recent memory, like if you look at Tampa, they, they can probably uh, incorporate one player a year, barring injury, right? Um, I remember coaching against Alex Volkov in the AHL and thinking that he was a pretty effective player and that, you know, he could have a chance to break through. And he played for Tampa last year and was really unimpressive. But he, then he, he didn't play a like lot. A he didn't play many games and he really didn't get much of a chance. So, you know, there, there's still a chance for him to be really effective. You know, they let Carter Verhage go and he goes uh, goes on to be a first-line player in Florida. So, and by the way, like Verhage was a guy that, uh, some of my colleagues still talk about because the Leafs drafted him and they just kind of packaged him off to, uh, I, I think the Islanders and third round was, pick was, was it it the Grabner trade or something like that. It was the Grabner trade. They traded away Verhage, Chris Gibson, um, and a few other players, whatever. It was just a toss away. I don't even think Verhage played like more than five games to the Marlies yet. That was a weird one, but that's interesting. Volkov. Yeah. He got tossed away for nothing. And he was like a kind of a highly coveted guy. I think they, I want to say New York probably wanted him in that trade for McDonough, and they said no, and then they end up losing him for a sixth. I mean, that's just the way things go with prospects, so it's kind of weird, but that is a good point. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's the danger when you're a good team is that not everybody, not all the kids get a fair shake. Um, but, but you know, like what I, – I don't think there's a way around it. Um, so, yeah, but – they have a number of players who can potentially help. And then the, the question just becomes, you know, which one's going to make it and which one isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at the, the least player personnel, they've lost some players this offseason, most notably Zach Hyman. Um, they lost a lot of the other, other few pieces like Bogosian and, and uh, Anderson, but mostly focusing on the players instead of the goalies. Um, how do you see the, the new players being brought in? How can they fill the the holes that have been left by players leaving like the like who do you think will be like a hymen replacement is it going to be like a, a group effort what do you how do you think the least will replace those players so it's like we go back to the scene from moneyball and you know like billy beans trying to replace like giambi and and you know uh isringhausen and, and whoever and like you can't really think that way you can't because who can replace zach hymen well nick ritchie isn't going to do that michael bunting's not going to do that um you know, how many games is Andre Kasha going to play or whatever. But, um, but I think with the, the, the kind of people that they brought in, there's probably a solution there. And it's not even that big a deal if 20 games in, uh, they feel like the people that they brought in haven't been good enough. It's still early enough for them to go and get another piece. Like one guy that I was talking up a little bit is Julian Gauthier on uh, the New York Rangers. So if you want a Zach Hyman replacement, a, a righty who, uh, you know, is, is strong physically, can win some pucks, but maybe a little bit deficient on, on, the, on the hockey sense side of things, this is a guy that I could bet on. Because the big thing with Zach Hyman when he, he first made the Leafs was he always had that forechecking ability, uh, that defensive kind of conscience, whatever. But 
for him, it was making plays on his backhand coming out of the corner, little things like that, where um, a lot of times the frustration was he would go and win a puck, but then immediately throw it away or immediately create another 50, 50, as opposed to winning a puck and then taking it to good ice and then finding alignment. And the thing with Julian Gauthier was uh, he was a really good junior uh, first round draft pick. Um, like he was the only undrafted player, like the only draft eligible player on team Canada, like that one, uh, one year at the, at the world juniors. And I actually, I, I skated with him in the summer, uh, many years ago. And what, what I noticed about him was like physically, like he, he's, he's a, he's a big boy, like he's really developed, but in terms of his ability to deceive and manipulate, he was really underwhelming for me. Like we were on the ice with like some, mid to triple a junior triple a guys like guys were in, you know basically we're not going to play pro hockey and he didn't stand out in that way like he was really good at taking pucks to the net and using wide speed to beat guys one-on-one he had a really good shot but um you know part of his game was really underdeveloped and i think if you're able to get a guy like that and just teach him how to come out of the corner and then make a play that's like that's tremendous value if you if you're able to use him with guys like Marner and Matthews. Oh, that's an interesting. Yeah, he's. he's I remember Julian Gauthier. He was first round pick. His family comes from bodybuilders. Good skater, big physical guy. But I think I know definitely what you're talking about there. Those guys that uh, like playing in net. I've seen it. They get like eight breakaways a game, and then they can't score. And then they go, ah, oh, it's it's just puck luck. It's like, well, no. If I know what you're doing, you're not going to score. You're not going to generate good chances there. Um, there was a lot of talk about Justin Hall being exposed. And I, I personally loved your article about um, the two non-negotiables for a defenseman. You talked about Justin Hall there. Um, and I just want you to maybe uh, give your take on, on that, uh, the Hall situation and how you, what you think about them protecting Hall and just your thoughts on Hall in general. I mean, I, I understand the thought process because basically no one is going to be able to walk into a right-handed D-man that can play 25 minutes in, in a non-sheltered role. Like you would have to give up some good assets. Whereas, you know, who knows, like Michael Bunting might score more points than Jerry McCann this year. It's, you know, it's a possibility. Um, so I, I understand it from that aspect. And, but on the other hand, it's like, whether it's Lilligren or Hollowell or Sandine or, you know, you name it, like those two non-negotiables, like we, we work with every prospect in, in the Leafs uh, depth chart. Like we, we put an emphasis on that at the draft and in player development. So if you're talking about retrieving pucks and, uh, you know, making controlled exits, or if you're talking about playing a tight gap and using your skating to deny entries, like, basically every single defenseman that the Leafs have drafted in the past four years or five years, like they fit that bill. They might not be the biggest. And, and I think that's where, you know, Hall brings something to the party with his, his size and his reach, but they can all do it. Right. So, so, so that's the other thing. It's like, you know, maybe, maybe this year hole is better than Lilligren, but for how many years is he going to be better? Right. And, but we'll see. And uh, like the common, like uh, that was a great answer. And the common um, pl- player that um, kept being brought up on who you would replace Hall with, a lot of people were saying on Twitter would be Dermot. Um, how would you think Dermot would be able to 
play out if you were to be put in that role as a secondhand right-hand Ian, what are your thoughts on Dermot in general? So, you know, I've been a fan of, of, of Dermot for a long time. And obviously I know him from working with him and stuff. And back in, I think the 2018 playoffs, um, when the Leafs were playing the Bruins, I, I pushed, uh, I sent a memo and I pushed for him to play uh, first pair right D with Morgan Riley against the Bergeron line. And my thinking was, um, as a right D, you're going up against Bergeron. And just from a mental makeup point of view, like I see Dermy as a guy that can really take it to, to, uh, to uh, sorry, to uh, Marchand. He could really take it to Marchand, uh, pinch down on him early on breakouts because the, their breakouts run through Marchand. Um, and even just psychologically, like provide a bit of a boost. Um, you know, even, yeah, so w- really good at playing a tight gap, really good at pressuring, um, using his skating to uh, create turnovers, you know, taking the body, um, but in, in kind of a more dynamic way than just hitting guys after the puck is gone, right? And what I've noticed throughout the years is once he's made the NHL, it seems like his puck plays become more and more simple and more and more conservative. And and that's really kind of something that's really disappointing me is that I expected him to do more with the puck and to push play down ice more effectively. And, you know, I I hear through the grapevine that they're not happy with how he's handling the puck. They think he makes, you know, a lot of turnovers or he bobbles some pucks. Um, and, and it just, it goes to one of the points that I have is the more you play in the NHL as a D, the worse you get in some ways. What I mean by that is you break into the league, you play fearless, you know, you play without pressure. And then the older you get, you know, you start slowing down, uh, you start, you know, your body starts betraying you a little bit, um, start being more afraid of the elite guys that you're facing day in, day out. Um, and then you start simplifying your game and sometimes it works out well. And sometimes it doesn't. And I think for Dermot in the grand scheme of things, it hasn't really worked out in the best way. Like he's still kind of an average to above average D, but I really, you know, if you, if, if we rewind three years, I would have ex- expected more out of him. Exactly. And I think you wrote an article about Eric Carlson, right? And he, he would be an extreme example of that. I would say, right. Yeah, well, even like if we rewind uh, seven years, we go back to 2014, who were the best four D-men on the planet? So it was Carlson, it was Drew Doughty, it was P.K. Subban, and it was OEL. And now they all suck. But, don't, but, don't but let not Drew even Doughty like, hear like, this one. It, like analytically speaking, they're worth a fraction of what they're being paid, right? And it's not even – I'd be surprised if any of them are worth kind of over two or three million per – you know, their, their war outputs. And it's just because, um, so Carlson's had some serious injuries and he's not moving as well as before. Uh, OEL has never been a very good skater and he's only getting worse. Uh, Subban's had that neck injury and he trains incorrectly and he hasn't added anything to his game. Uh, Drew Doughty had his conditioning has been subpar and he's lost that urgency. Maybe he'll get it back. So in that group, I'm actually most bullish on Doughty because it's more of a mental thing and maybe he gets back in shape. Maybe the Kings get better and he finds that spark again, but for the other three guys, it's going to be tough. And they've been, they've been playing for a long time and, you know, they have the reputation, but if you look at their play objectively, 
it, it just shows how hard it is for you to sustain that level, especially as a D. So, so um, if, if let's talk about Dowdy for a second, because I think, you know, because he's been kind of forgettable the last few years, we, we, we don't give him maybe as much credit for his peak years, but I was talking to Daryl Belfry a while back and we were, for, for whatever reason, we were talking about that 2014 game at Sochi when um, Canada almost lost to the Latvians. And, and Daryl told me, if Dowdy doesn't elevate during that game at key moments, Canada loses that game. Yeah. Yeah. He was a rock star that year. So, you know, big moment, big pressure. And like Dowdy is that kind of guy. And who knows? Like maybe he is going to prove us wrong this year. And maybe like I tweeted today that I think LA is going to be way better than people expect. And if he can be part of that solution, I think. I wanted to get into a, uh, you wrote an article about, newly signed Leaf, David Kampf. Um, just going to come out and say it. We're not really big fans of him here. I think that was a massive overpayment. I think he deserved $1.5 over two years. You wrote an article, though. You, you got me a little bit more optimistic about him. What are your thoughts on David Kampf? Well, well I mean, first of all, at $1.5 over two years, it basically gets you the worst NHL regular that you can think of. Right, because that's the league minimum. Yeah, and so that, unless you got a situation like Spezza or whatever, but you can't expect that. So, and and for me, like anything below two million, it's kind of a if he really doesn't work out, you bury him and you call it a day, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, so I like I don't have a problem with the money. First of all, okay, like if, if he can play, he can be a regular. I don't have a problem with that. The the second thing is that for me, he has. I think he's the kind of player that the Leafs were looking for when they went and got uh, Riley Nash and to a lesser extent, Nick Foligno, like that, that shutdown center who can play a reliable game, who can be available, who can help the D's out, who can get the puck out of the D zone. Um, and honestly, like if I, like when I was breaking down his game uh, for my newsletter, a lot of what he did reminded me of Philip Deneau who I got to watch a lot in Montreal. So he's not as good as the no, like we're not expecting first line production out of this guy, but it's just like, he has a knack of being helpful to his teammates. That doesn't really, it doesn't really pop because he's not the guy carrying it out of the D zone or into the offensive zone or taking shots or maybe even setting up shots, but he creates like he plays well in structure and he creates a structure for his wingers and his D's to kind of work around him. And I think as a, as a third or fourth liner, that's really valuable. Um, so, so, so that's my thing on David Kampf. And I think at one and a half million a year, like he's not, he's not terribly old. Uh, he's not going to be uh, butthurt if he doesn't play on the power play or even the PK, like, you know, like, like I think it's a worthwhile investment. So I'm overreacting pretty much. Well, I, or I could be underreacting. I don't know. Like, who's to say? But but one one thing I would say is, like, I've heard people um, suggest that, 
you know, he's going to play on a very defensive minded line, let's say with Engvall and Simmons or whatever, right? Like a line where uh, they're going to carry the puck out, dump it in, forecheck a bit, and then go for a change. And I would actually argue against that. I would like to see a guy with some, some finishing power next to him because he was at his best in Chicago uh, with Dominic Kubalik, uh, who basically like, he's like a perennial like Cy Young type player with like 30 goals and like 10 assists or whatever it is. Like a guy who I see him cheating for offense a lot, like a big guy with a good shot, a good touch around the net, but really a defensive liability i would say maybe not like in terms of volume but he gives up quite a bit because he he likes to cheat for offense and i think if you put camp with a player like that you get the best of both worlds where camp is going to cover for you defensively get the puck out but then once he does you have some firepower off the rush because camp is not going to score off the rush and the the danger with playing like three heavy defensive guys together who are going to cycle the puck is you're not going to score off the rush. You're going to go into the other zone and put up some shot attempts, you know, grease your expected goals, but then you're going to get tired. You're going to turn the puck over and then you're going to get scored on off the rush against. So you end up with like, let's say like a 60% Corsi or like a 55% expected goals, but then you get outscored because all your shots are off the cycle. They're contested shots from bad areas and all your shots against are off the rush, maybe odd man rushes. So I, I really like camp to play with a guy that, that can actually score off the rush a little bit. Ironically enough, just looking at the training camp lines, I know they split the team up. So I don't know how much you want to look into this. He's actually skating with Andre Kasha and Nikita Gusev. Interesting. So I wonder if, <laughs> if Kyle read your article with, with that. Well, that well I'm, I'm sure Kyle's a, a, a regular reader, but yeah, like Gusev, like if you want to, if you want to redeem Kasha and Gusev, like, I can think of worse centers than David Camp for those two guys. Interesting. I had a, a, like not to jump topics. I had more of a general question that I've seen a lot of people interested in. You know, as you said, you kind of have a very unique behind the scenes look at how the sausage is made. Um, what's the biggest difference? And then maybe what are some similarities between the public models that exist for like analytics? We see a lot of great people on Twitter, like evolving wild Dom from the athletic. What's the difference between that and what you see, you know, in house. I know you can't really reveal that much, but how similar are they? And then again, how, like how different are they? Well, like even that discussion is kind of moved now because sport logic is starting to release some of his data to the public, uh, to have a betting platform. And also I've seen Jay fresh, um, do visits on sport logic data. So now you get to see really what the difference is. And, uh, for the most part, it's maybe like a five or 10% difference, which it, it doesn't make a, a huge difference when you're on Twitter arguing with strangers, but you know, when you're in a very competitive industry looking for an edge, then it does make a big difference. But really, it's not night and day. It's incremental, but it's definitely not night and day. That is very interesting. I had one more uh, submitted question here from Carson Bunker. Um, do you have a dark horse player on the Marlies who you think can end up on the Leafs one day? Uh, um, I, I I barely know who's on the Marlies now. It's uh, It's been a while, but you know what? Like, um, I think one of Philip Crawl and Mac Hollowell is going to play some NHL games. Like I, I've always liked Philip Crawl. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of them because he's mostly been in, in Europe uh, after playing Spokane. But he he does a lot of things that we look for 
by we, I mean, not just me, but the Leafs, like they look for in the D man. That's interesting. Yeah. We've seen, I think Mac Holloway, I think they really like as well. So that's a, that's an interesting one there too, but excited to see Philip Carl with the, the Marlies. I think we're, I've got everything great here, Jack. Thanks so much for coming in and you've got some stuff you want to plug right now. Okay, so uh, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. Uh, my my uh, handle is J-H-A-N-H-K-Y. Um, once you're on my Twitter, you can sign up for my free newsletter. And you can also buy my new ebook, Hockey Tactics 2021. It's read by NHL players, coaches, and GMs. And in it, you'll find an explanation of why the Leafs haven't yet won the Stanley Cup. How about that? Love it. Love oh, that. Love it. You're going to get a big spike in buys from that one. (laughs) And also you're going to find an incredibly juicy story about the time that I interviewed for my job with Lou Lamorello and Kyle Dubas. You're going to love that one. Oh, that's a good teaser right there. Again, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on, Jack. Well, uh, take care guys. Best of luck. Thanks so much.